Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Today we're going to be continuing our study on the book of John. And while I'd like to call today's study an exegetical one, the truth is that it's more about building a solid defense against the devil and his lies. In today's text, I believe you're going to see something extremely fascinating. Where at first you might begin to question why there are four Gospels, I believe that by the end of today's message, you're going to be extremely grateful for them. So, go knock the dust off God's Word and turn to John 1, 19-51, because this study is entitled, The Lie or Believe. Do you know anyone who likes to exaggerate? You can generally tell a person who likes to exaggerate when you hear someone say to them, This story gets more and more incredible every time you tell it. Now, I think, let's be fair, we all can exaggerate, and, and when we do this, we end up contradicting ourselves. Others might even say to us, Hey, the first time you told this story, the fish you caught was only 2 pounds, but this time you're saying it was at least 20. So which is it? 2 or 20? We all exaggerate from time to time, right? I think we do it because when we exaggerate, it makes the story more incredible and easier to listen to, maybe more enjoyable. Everybody wants to tell an incredible story. Because of all the incredible stories, though, the world is becoming increasingly skeptical. When we embellish a story to make it more colorful, we don't generally think about the consequences that might happen. We think, well, it's just a little lie that doesn't really hurt anyone. Where's the harm in that? But this world is full of incredible stories that have been proven to be vastly exaggerated. And because of this, we are taught to question everything, especially the Bible. You see, many people see God's Word as an incredible story. And it is. But they see it as one that's a little too incredible. So several people write it off as an exaggeration and even promote that it's full of contradictions. The Bible is then explained away by saying things like, You know, men wrote the Bible and because men often make mistakes, there are understandably several contradictions in the Bible. I recently read a post by a well-meaning Christian that I think he, he, he just was trying to communicate that although there are contradictions, we can do something about it. He said, if you find a contradiction in the Bible, it's likely because you're taking things too literally. You should instead try to find a way to understand the spiritual, figurative meaning behind what the passage is saying. To which I would say, no. While, listen, I understand that not everything in the Bible is a literal translation. I also believe that many contradictions that people come up with are to be taken literally. But I also believe that the Bible is God's inspired and infallible word. It is without flaw and contradiction. And because of this belief, whenever I discover a supposed contradiction or have one brought to me, I'm obligated to investigate it and try to come up with some explanation. Otherwise, I would have to surrender over my belief that the Bible is infallible, and that's just not something that I'm willing to do. If you're unwilling or too lazy to investigate what others might call a contradiction, you cannot hold on to the belief that the Bible is infallible and or perfect. And after studying this week's passage, John 1, 19-51, I have discovered three major areas where people might try to use the Bible to discredit itself. And I want to read our passage in three parts and talk about what these supposed contradictions are. But before I do that, I just want to give a little disclaimer to anyone who might not be as familiar with this passage uh, as me or someone else. Because there, there's, there's something to get 
that can get very, very confusing very quickly. In today's passage, um, it was written by a man named John who was a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's going to be talking about a man named John the Baptist. Now, anytime I talk about the two, I'll try to distinguish them. And, and I'll refer to one as our author John, otherwise known as the Apostle John. And I'll refer to John, the other John as John the Baptist. And, and just to make sure that we don't get them confused, that they're, they're not the same people. I also want you to know that my name is John, so this is even more confusing. So um, today, just be careful not to, to, not to mix the two up. I'll try to do my best to distinguish them. But what I want to do is I want to read John chapter 1. And, and just begin with, with 19, verses 19 through 28. This is what it says. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and the Levites to ask him who he was, talking about John the Baptist. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John the Baptist replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling out in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John the Baptist was baptizing. Now, um, you may or may not have noticed, this is supposed contradiction number one. Did you notice that John the Baptist said he wasn't Elijah? When we know that other places in the New Testament Jesus said he was, in the book of Malachi chapter 3 and, and Malachi 4, 5 through 6, God says that he's going to send the prophet Elijah to precede the Christ, the anointed one. Jesus says in Matthew 17, 11 through 13, that John the Baptist was Elijah. So who should we believe, Jesus or John the Baptist? There are several things happening in this passage that, 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 that should make your ears perk up, not just John the Baptist's denial for being Elijah. For example, why did the priests and the Levites come out to question him? In a standard commentary, the general consensus is, well, they were jealous of his success. However, I don't think that's the root of what, what is really going on here. And I'll explain why in just a minute. For now, I just want to focus on the questions that they're asking him because I believe it shows us something key to understanding how to resolve the supposed contradiction. Notice that they didn't ask John what he was doing. They asked him who he was. Why is this important? The reason this is important is because they already knew what he was doing. Baptism isn't unique to Christianity. Baptism was taking place at least 200 years before Christ. A strict sect of Jews known as the Essenes regularly baptized people. The Essenes uh, were essentially the early scholastic monks, the monks before the Christian monks. The Essenes um, were supposedly the ones who were responsible for preserving the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
Now, this sect lived in solitude and voluntary poverty and would regularly baptize people for what they would call purification rites. In other words, they baptized to symbolically wash away sin. But this was only done for non-Jewish people who wanted to convert to Judaism. So here's John the Baptist, a nobody, baptizing people much like the Essenes did. Except John isn't baptizing just the non-Jews. He's baptizing anyone and everyone who needs to repent from sin. So other Jews might have seen this and knew what he was doing and sent word for the priests and the Levites to come out and inspect it for themselves. And when these priests and Levites asked him these questions, try to picture indignation coming from their attitudes because they were no doubt angry that he was not only baptizing without a permit, so to speak, he was baptizing Jews. Not only that, but the questions that they are asking him shows us that they didn't really have a full understanding about the prophecy uh, about Elijah and the coming Christ. Now, this is understandable. Hindsight is always 2020 vision. We can look back and say, ah, you bunch of dummies. We know that that's, that's John the Baptist. But if you have a complete lack of empathy for them, consider trying to explain the book of Revelation with 100% clarity. And you might just understand a little bit how this might feel. Notice, they asked John if he was the Christ, John the Baptist. They asked him if he was the Christ. And then they asked him if he was the prophet. Who is the prophet if not the Christ? Moses explained to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now, we know, as followers of Christ, that Moses was talking about Jesus, the Christ. Which, go do a study on the similarities between uh, Moses and the Christ, and you will see just how much like Moses Jesus was. It'll absolutely blow you away. Or, I should say, how much like Jesus Moses was. Um, But when they also thought, they brought this question to John the Baptist, asking him if he was Elijah... They were asking him, are you Elijah in the flesh? So when they asked him this question, they were asking, are you the Elijah who stood on Mount Carmel and squared off with the prophets of Baal? And of course, the answer to that is no, I'm John the Baptist. Notice also how when they asked him, what do you have to say for yourself? His reply to them confirms his identity. John the Baptist replied in verse 23, I am the voice of the one calling out in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Our author John confirms that John the Baptist used these words from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. This was a passage that was associated with the coming Elijah. John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy about Elijah because he is the one who makes straight the way. The Hebrew word for make straight is panu, which which means to clear or to turn which consequently is exactly what John was doing, John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. Now the word repent means to change direction or to turn. He was preparing the way because he was preaching to turn people's hearts to the Lord. Before we move on, I just want to quickly point out some things that we can also know about John the Baptist from the other Gospels. Um, in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is described as having a garment of hair or fur and leather 
uh, a leather belt around his waist. Mark, for some reason, records what, what John the Baptist wears during his ministry in Mark 1.6, saying, John wore clothing, John the Baptist wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. You see, Elijah wore abstract clothing to distinguish himself from the other prophets who were interested in power and prestige and money, and they dressed beautifully. Consequently, uh, as Elijah distinguished himself from the prophets and the priests, that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing too. He wore camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist. More than that, Elijah, he suffered persecution from the king of northern Israel, Ahab, and his, his queen, his wife, Jezebel, hated him, hated Elijah, and wanted him dead. Well, John the Baptist was thrown in prison and eventually killed because the king of the northern, northern Israel, Herod, who sat on the very same throne as Ahab, took him into custody. Now, if you know the story, it was Herodias, Herod's wife, who especially hated John the Baptist and conspired to have his head on a silver platter. Elijah questioned God from a deep, dark cave, saying, I'm the only one left. John the Baptist questioned Jesus from a dark prison cell, probably because he felt all alone. The similarities are uncanny here, to be sure, but they simply show us that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah, just as Jesus said he did. The angel Gabriel confirms to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, in Luke 1.17, that his son would go on, quote, go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, not the flesh. So you see, this isn't a contradiction. The issue is that the priest and the Levites' question was flawed. The problem is not in, in John the Baptist's answer, it's in their question. And rather than admit they didn't completely understand God's prophecy, they instead tried to stand in the way of God. Let's move on here. I want to read John chapter 1, uh, verses 29 through 34. Uh, it says, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John the Baptist gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that there was one who sent me to baptize with water and told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, did you notice something extremely important is missing from our author John's timeline? Something that's supposed to happen immediately after Jesus' baptism. In the, in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, it says uh, this about Jesus' baptism. At once, after he's baptized, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. However, our author John doesn't allow any time for Jesus to go into the wilderness. Day 1, John the Baptist is questioned. Day two, Jesus shows up for baptism. In the next verse, it says, uh, in verse 35, it says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and Jesus is still hanging around. So day three, the disciples followed Jesus. But 
where are the 40 days that are after Jesus' baptism? That's a direct contradiction, isn't it? Well, if you leave with anything today, I hope it's this. You don't have to be afraid what's written in the other Gospels. In fact, you should be extremely thankful that there are four of them. To explain why our author John wrote what he did, we must carefully investigate what the Gospels actually say about Jesus' baptism and what he's saying here. Otherwise, critics would be exactly right. The timeline of Jesus' baptism is inconsistent throughout the Gospels. But let's go back and let's look at the the book of Matthew and see what it says about Jesus' baptism and the 40-day walk in the wilderness or in the desert. In Matthew 4, it confirms that Jesus was baptized and then he was led out into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. However, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John, the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, which is where we know John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Now, I understand I'm going to have to take some liberties to explain what I believe Scripture is telling us about this event, but I'm 100% certain that I'm making a safe assumption. When our author John writes about Jesus in today's text, he's talking about when Jesus returned from his 40 days in the desert which makes so much more sense when you read it through this lens. The religious leaders came out to question John the Baptist because he didn't, ha- he didn't have what I would quote, the permit, and, and he didn't have a, a sufficient answer to satisfy him. And so they threw him into prison. We can safely assume that John the Baptist was taken into prison because before he was baptizing people as usual, then they came to question him, and then Matthew tells us that Jesus heard he was in prison. And suddenly, he's in jail. So, in John uh, chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, John the Baptist is actually saying, after, after, Jesus, after he's baptized, after Jesus spent 40 days in the, in the desert, he says, hey, remember that guy I told you about? I baptized him, and there he is. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. This is the guy I was telling you about. So, he's recalling the baptism. He's not baptizing him here. In verse 32 through 34, it says, Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him. He's talking about this in past tense. I would not have known him except that there was one who sent me to baptize with water and told me, The man on whom you seen the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this, this guy in front of me, is the Son of God. So, you see, all this was happening after Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. Now, I recently read a book about a sermon uh, sermon preparation, and the author condemns what I'm about to do, and I'm sure several seminary professors would do, condemn me as well. But um, what I'm about to share with you is what I call a John Wallerism. It's just my spin on what went down that isn't necessarily in Scripture. Uh, so, you know what? You can take it with a grain of salt if you want. Study it for yourself. Challenge me on this if you like. But I think this is what happened. I think when Jesus heard that John the Baptist was in prison, as we see in the book of Matthew, I think he came back to get him out. Now, the reason I say this is because he's in prison for baptizing without a permit, so to speak, on behalf of Jesus. But later in John 3.23, he's out baptizing again in a different spot. So for those of us who have read ahead and we know what later happens to John the Baptist, 
We need to see that he has a history of upsetting the wrong people because he's serving God. I believe Jesus got him out of jail. Maybe he didn't. Maybe they just let him go. Like, hey, you shut your mouth about, about this Jesus guy. Now, in John 1.34, however, I want to show you something that, that I personally struggle with when studying this text. John the Baptist, in verse 34, says, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Well, if you're so certain, John, why then do you later send your disciples to ask Jesus if he really is the Christ when you're sitting in prison again? I mean, in Matthew 11, 2-3, you're sitting in jail again, and that's exactly what you do. Again, this is my spin on things, a Wallerism, if you will. John the Baptist was a great man, to be sure. In fact, Jesus confirmed that, that, that no one has existed that he more deeply respected. However, John the Baptist was still a man. Even what we would consider to be a great man or woman of God today, these people can still grow discouraged from time to time. I'm not a great man of God, but I'm a follower of Christ and, and, and a pastor, and I'm telling you, I've had experience with growing discouraged. I think this is what happened. Jesus bailed John out of prison, and that John the Baptist later returns to prison and fully expected Jesus to get him out again. Now, regardless of why he questioned Jesus later on, maybe you don't accept all that. That's fine. It shows us, you know, he questions Jesus later. It shows us his humanity, and it can even testify that what we read about the life and account of Jesus is absolutely genuine, that these people weren't flawless. Before we move on, just keep in mind, this is not a contradiction of the timeline of the Jesus narrative because our author John was writing this after Jesus' baptism in the 40 days in the, in the desert. I want to I continue moving on because this, this is something really cool I want to show you. In John chapter 1, uh, let's read verse 35 through 51. This is what it says. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he says, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the, one, one of the two that heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. Doesn't name the other person. Notice that. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, which we know means rock. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. And he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is the true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. 
you shall see even greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you studied the other Gospels, you very likely recognize that the Apostle John describes a very different account of how the other disciples were called and in what order they were called in. Now, uh, that would be what we would consider to be contradiction number three. This doesn't line up with the other Gospels. But keep in mind that it's only in Matthew and Mark uh, that it seems to be different because Luke doesn't talk about the calling of the disciples at all. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, it confirms what the other disciple uh, or, or other uh, gospel writer Mark says in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And that is unlike what we read about in the book of John. These two gospels say that Jesus called Andrew, then his brother Peter, when they were out fishing, and then he goes on a little further and he finds James and his brother John in their father's boat and he calls them to come follow him. Yet in the book of John, it seems to suggest that Andrew and some unnamed disciple, who were the disciples of John the Baptist, were the first to follow Jesus. The, the order actually, actually suggests this. Andrew, this unnamed disciple, Simon Peter, then Philip, then Nathaniel. So this isn't in, in the right order. What happened to James and John? Well, in John's gospel, this is the order of events that we see. John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and then Andrew and this unnamed disciple start following behind Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? And they say to him, hey, Jesus, we just want to hang out with you a little while. Is that cool? Now, if you're wondering, that's the J-O-N translation of the Bible. But that's essentially what's going on. Jesus agrees, and they spend the rest of the day with him. Then they brought back their brothers. In, in, in verses 41 through 42, it says, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon to tell him, We have found Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. In verse 43, it says, The next day, Jesus saw Philip, who eventually led Nathanael to Christ. Which, by the way, um, I don't know if you know this, but, but towards the, notice this, but towards the end of the t- today's text, Nathanael is very skeptical about this Jesus fellow. And until Jesus gets Nathanael's attention, he doesn't follow him. What Jesus says to him is like, hey, by the way, I saw you under that fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel, he immediately declares, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Now, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus, what was Nathaniel doing under that fig tree that would elicit such a response that you know you said you saw him and he responded that way? What was he doing? Anyway, rabbit trail. Back to our conundrum. Our author, John, seems to contradict what Matthew and Mark say about how Jesus called his disciples and in what order. Again, before jumping to conclusions about the Bible, we must carefully examine what the Gospels actually say about this event. The key to understanding this passage is by recognizing that John, our author, is the unnamed disciple in this passage that is with Andrew and John the Baptist. When the Apostle John set out to write his Gospel, He no doubt made up his mind that this was not going to be his story, but the story about Jesus. And so in every place that he can, he removes himself from the story. Only when it is absolutely necessary that he be present in the story does he refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now this only makes more sense when you see the way that they were called. Our author, John, and Andrew spent the day with Jesus. Then they returned home. This is what he tells us. They returned home. 
and they tell their brothers all about the event. And possibly that evening, because Jesus' disciples like to fish at night, Jesus is walking along the shore, sees Andrew and Peter first, and then he comes across James and John. See, our author isn't contradicting what the other gospel says. He, he's giving us an eyewitness testimony of exactly how it happened from his perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke weren't around when the, other, when the author, John, was called to be a disciple of Christ, which is why they would tell you the order of how it all happened. But that's not the day he met Jesus, which gives us you know, even greater depth and understanding that, that our, what our author says about Jesus, it has so much more weight because he and Andrew were the first of the disciples to follow Jesus. Now, I want to show you something else, and it can only be done by reading the, the first verse of the next chapter. On, on, on chapter 2, let's read the first two verses. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee because Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So let, let's just for, just for a second, in, in the passage that we've read today, in verse 19, in verse 29, and verse 35, and then again in chapter 2, verse 1, John is giving us a timeline here. And, and let's recall that timeline, if you don't mind. On day 1, John the Baptist is questioned. On day 2, Jesus shows up and John the Baptist talks about Jesus' baptism. On day 3, in verse 35, Jesus calls his disciples... On day four, which our author John says is actually day three, Jesus goes to a wedding. Now, did the apostle John not realize what he wrote? He's contradicting his own writing. He says day one, day two, day three, day four, wait, day, day three, not day four. Day, day three, guys, day three. When you understand that our author John is the unnamed disciple here, everything else makes sense. You see, he recalls the events that took place in what seems to be four days. But the focus isn't on the events, John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism and when the disciples were called. The Apostle John is putting the focus on the day he met Jesus. He says to his readers, let me tell you about the day I met Jesus. And by the way, I used to be a disciple of John the Baptist until he pointed me to Christ. When John is talking about on the third day, He's talking about the third day he knew Jesus. Again, it's hard to understand because he removes himself from his gospel. But John was there. How and what order Jesus called his disciples has no contradictions. The Apostle John's story lines up with what the other gospels say perfectly when you understand the perspective that he is writing from. Now let me tell you what I believe about people who are looking for contradictions in God's word. I believe that they are looking for an opportunity, probably the first opportunity, to abandon ship. Satan has clouded their judgment because they love the sin that the Bible condemns. They don't want to repent, and they don't want to surrender their lives over to Jesus because they're foolish and they ironically masquerade wisdom. I don't believe that there are contradictions in Scripture. I do believe, however, that God has given us just enough rope in Scripture to hang ourselves if we, if we use it to fashion a noose. In other words, if we're looking for a reason to abandon God's Word, there will be plenty of opportunities to do that. Did you know that whenever I sat down on Tuesday to begin my study in this passage, I had all kinds of questions about it. 
Because doubt, doubt and fear, it just clouded my mind. I didn't have an answer for these supposed contradictions. But rather than abandon my faith, I did something crazy. I simply prayed for an answer, and I studied. And I believe God gave me an answer. Now, maybe you disagree with everything that I've said today. And what I would tell you is that you have the right to be skeptical. But rather than hide from Scripture because you don't like what it says, why not investigate it for yourself and pray for an answer to your questions? You might say, well, I'm an atheist. I don't pray. Listen, even an atheist can pray. An atheist prayer just sounds like this. God, if you're really out there, then fill in the blank. Maybe you don't disagree with what I've said, but instead you're wondering how in the world I was able to come up with all this information from this little bit of scripture. And, and to which I, I would answer, I'm not special. You can get all that too. The only reason I saw all of this was because I prayed that God would show me what he wanted me to see, and he did. I know for me to say, we all need to study our Bibles. It doesn't carry a lot of weight because, let's face it, while you're at work or at home taking care of the kids, I'm in my office studying my Bible. In other words, I get paid to study my Bible. However, even though it's not as easy for you and me, or easy, easy for you as it, as it is for me, I believe that if you will study God's Word and pray that God, through the Holy Spirit, will help you see what He wants you to see, that He will show you even greater things than these. If you have doubts, confess them. If you have questions, ask Him and look to Him for an answer. I believe the Bible is God's inspired and infallible Word. It is without flaw or contradiction. But don't just take my word for it. Go study it for yourself. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.